Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery again. After leaving you hanging for more than a month, we're back with more Joe and Lie, part five this time. Last episode, we left off right at the founding of the PRC in 1949. After surviving several assassination attempts, dodging the KMT secret police for years, illness, the long march, and the Civil War... Joe Enlai got to stand near Mao when the chairman said those famous remarks on the Tiananmen viewing platform on 10-149. Around five months before that historic moment, after deciding the drive from the fragrant hills into the city was becoming a hassle, Joe decided he'd just move to Beijing. Despite Joe's well-known ascetic tastes, he and Deng Yingchao moved into Chongnanhai. Adjacent to the Forbidden City, Zhongnanhai thereupon became, and still is today, the compound where all China's top leadership hang their hat. Zhou's first office and residence was in the Jixiangshu Wu, located in Yingtai. If you look at a map of the Zhongnanhai compound, you'll see this island in the center of the Nanhai, or South Lake, connected to the shore by a bridge. Pretty exquisite. In late Chinese history, it's best known as the place where the Empress Dowager Cixi locked up the Guangxu Emperor after he went a little bit too far with all his reforms. It all sounds nice and cozy, and with all the royal comforts one might expect. The truth of the matter was, it was in a terrible state of disrepair. But no matter, because after Mao decided it was time for him to head to Beijing, he coveted Zhou's digs and... The premier gave up his Yingtai address and moved his residence to the Xihuating, another pavilion located in Zhongnanhai that was originally built for Prince Chun. You all remember him. He was the father of the Guangxu Emperor and the grandfather to the last emperor, Puyi. The Xihuating was built in 1910, so Prince Chun, because of the revolution, never got to kick back and enjoy it. Despite the gold-plated address, the Xihuating wasn't in the best shape, and Joe's underlings kept calling for much-needed repairs to be made. But Joe wouldn't have it. The way he saw it, China was a poor country, desperately poor, and in terrible financial straits. So he didn't want to set any precedent by fixing up his crib and getting it all nice and comfortable. Joe and Deng Yingchao had to rough it. One day, while he was away on one of his many trips, his assistants and secretaries moved in and started carrying out repairs and spiffed the place up a little to make it at least livable for their boss. When Joe came back and saw this, he was quite livid. He angrily told his staff to take everything away, back out all the repairs, and make everything just the way it was before his business trip. He even brought this matter up at a state council meeting and said this wasn't his idea, and he was totally against it. But in true Joe fashion, he took full and complete responsibility for the matter. All the other leaders got the hint. And if anyone was looking to perform a total makeover of their Zhongnanhai digs, they shelved the idea. To set an example for everyone, like Caesar's wife, Zhou Enlai believed he had to be above reproach. This line of thought extended to Joe's family as well. He made it clear to everyone in his extended family that they shouldn't expect any preferential treatment. In fact, during the 1920s, when he got more and more involved in the communist movement in China, he severed relations with most of his family members. He made a couple exceptions, though. During his wartime Chongqing period, he allowed his ailing father to come live with him until he passed in 1942. 
His younger brother, Joe Unshow, was struggling with six children and no job. Joe arranged for Unshow to secure a rather menial, low-paying job, nothing special, no perks. Joe did, however, give his DD a little boutier on the side, a little allowance, out of his own pocket, of course. And he also took three of Unshow's children off his hands to lighten his brother's load. He and Deng Yingchao raised these children as if they were their own. You see, Zhou and Deng Yingchao never had any children of their own. Besides his brother's kids, he also assumed responsibility for a number of other children of martyred revolutionaries, such as Sun Weishi and Li Peng. Li Peng, of course, later served as China's premier from 1987 to 1998. Sun Weishi we'll get to in part six or seven. And it didn't end there. If the authorities in Huai'an, Jiangsu province, had any notions about marketing the place as the birthplace of Premier Zhou Enlai, they were told by the Premier to not make a fuss about him or attempt to make Zhou out to be anything special. You may recall from those Deng Xiaoping episodes that Deng was the same exact way. So, the People's Republic of China was proclaimed, which was the easy part, and now the time had come to actually set up the framework for the new government. A month after the founding of the nation, Joe set up the state council. The closest equivalent to this body in America would be the entire executive branch of the government. This body is known in China today as the Guo Wu Yuan, and again, created by Zhou Enlai, though when he set it up, it was initially called the Zheng Wu Yuan. For the first nine years of the PRC's history, Joe wore two main hats. He was both the premier and the foreign minister. In 1958, Zhou will step down as foreign minister and pass that job to Chen Yi. Zhou's manner in which he dealt with his staff was legendary. First of all, if you worked directly for Zhou Enlai, you had no other life. You were on call 24-7. Zhou treated them well and was a very strict but patient teacher. The Zhou Enlai office consisted of a director, deputy director, and five secretaries in charge of general affairs, foreign affairs, military affairs, finance, and the economy. By the mid-1950s, this would increase to 18 secretaries. As we'll see as our story unfolds, Zhou Enlai never went against Mao. No one knew Mao Zedong like Zhou. He kept his working hours pegged directly to Mao's. And Mao kept some pretty weird hours. He was a hardcore night owl. For Chairman Mao, his day usually ended around 5 in the morning. That meant Joe normally began his day sometime around 11 a.m. He started off by reading cover to cover the People's Daily, Guangming Daily, Liberation Daily, and Shanghai's Wenhui Bao. Not a moment was wasted with Joe. He even used to do the same old shtick that LBJ used to do, seeing his aides and secretaries while he was on the pot doing his thing in the morning. Female employees who had something to bring to the premier would always ask one of their male counterparts to deliver the document or message to the WC. I was wondering how to explain the magnitude of Joe's responsibilities and what his day was like. As China began its transformation in the 1950s, he had a hand in everything. He was a hands-on kind of manager. He had no problem getting his hands dirty, especially in the beginning when he was still able to casually mingle with the masses. 
Han Su Yin, in her book Eldest Son, Zhou Enlai and the Making of Modern China, had this to say, quote, Joe walked into city markets, into shops, checking on the efficiency of razor blades, the quality of shoes, the fabric of ready-made trousers. Unannounced, he appeared at public canteens, queuing up with bowl and chopsticks to check on the quality of food. If it was bad, Joe lined up the cooks, the waiters, the manager, and delivered a lecture. End quote. Joe's uh, secretary, Pu Chang, said, quote, no one ever knew what he would do next, where he would turn up, and the people loved that. It made everyone take pride in doing their work right. Everyone did their best, end quote. Joe continued to reach out to and work with all those non-party members who, despite their skepticism about everything Mao was saying, stayed behind a wait and see. Joe had always tried to cultivate these intellectuals, capitalists, and important figures going back to the earliest days. Joe didn't believe they should be alienated, and they all had a role to play in national reconstruction. So much needed to be done. The four priorities named by Joe were economic reconstruction, land reform, social reforms, and most important of all, designing and building all the critical government institutions. This was another one of those easier-said-than-done things. As Joe got to work, it became evident from the get-go that there wasn't enough talent around to fill these key posts. So he turned to these intellectuals and overseas Chinese and coaxed them into joining in on the rebuilding of China. Zhou Enlai served as premier and named four vice-premiers. Two were of the Communist Party, two were not. Of the top 109 spots in the Guowuyuan, 10 of the 21 ministers named by Zhou were also not CCP members. Yeah, Zhou Enlai had a lot on his plate. 21 ministries, three commissions, four bureaus, and a secretariat. And four committees under Zhou ran over 30 institutions. But Zhou's other main task at this early stage was in his capacity as China's foreign minister, and that's what we'll mostly focus on today. As we'll see, it was never a dull moment for the premier-slash-foreign minister. As you recall from the past four episodes, Zhou had worked tirelessly since 1925 handling the embryonic CCP's diplomacy, public relations, and managing every emergency that reared its ugly head between the Shanghai Massacre to the founding of the PRC. His years in Chongqing introduced Zhou to many leaders, future leaders, politicians, and world figures. If Zhou thought back then that these contacts might be important one day, he was right. Zhou set up the foreign ministry, and on November 8, 1949, everyone moved into the old Zhongliyaman building the first Western-style building in Beijing, built during the bad old days of the late Qing Dynasty. Now, where the foreign ministry was concerned, Zhou only permitted party members to serve. He drew the line there. For his three vice-foreign ministers, Zhou picked three men he could trust completely. These were Wang Jiaxiang, Li Keqiong, and Zhang Hanfu. Other key foreign ministry people included Wang Bingnan, Xiao Guanhua, Chen Jiakang, Ke Bainian, Gongpeng, Zhang Wenjin, and of course, the more well-known, in the USA at least, Huang Hua. 
attending to this inner circle at the foreign ministry were about 170 junior staff. By the mid-60s, this number will grow to over 2,000. October 1st, 1949 was not only the date of the founding of the PRC, it also marked the date on the top of the memo Joe and Lai sent out to all world governments saying if they wanted to have relations with the People's Republic, they had to sever their ties to the nationalists, now busy regrouping on the island of Taiwan. In addition to this, they had to call for China's seat at the UN to be occupied by the PRC government. Of course, this isn't going to happen until 1979. Despite this fresh start policy, only 11 communist nations signed up, the USSR being the first, of course. Stalin had his reservations, though. If you recall from the past episode, Stalin was no fan of Mao. In fact, Stalin lost more than a bit of sleep worrying about Mao becoming another Tito. I'm not talking Tito from the Jackson 5. This was Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia, who became more of a competitor to Stalin rather than a loyal puppet. Between December 1949 and January 1950, 13 more nations joined the list of those who recognized the PRC government as the legitimate government of the Chinese people and the Chinese nation. These included Israel, India, Pakistan, and Burma. The foreign powers had been making themselves comfortable in China since the time of the Opium War. It was going to be a gargantuan task to slowly pry loose all the influence and institutions buildings, companies, and property back from the British, Americans, French, and Dutch. In 1949, there were still 1,700 foreign enterprises with a total investment of $860 million in China still operating. For them, time was running out. Joe was in charge of taking that all back and telling the foreign owners to not let the door slam their rear ends as they made their way to the exits. Some of you may recall from the recent... Jack Jones' episode that their tiny operation on the south bank of the Yangtze River in Chongqing was one of these many institutions that were closed down in this effort. Jack Jones' Friends Ambulance Unit and all Christian missions and missionaries, all of them. Joe told them in so many words, get out of here. There were 12,000 missionaries still doing their thing in China at the time of liberation. Half of them were foreigners. During this period, there followed a major clampdown on foreigners and all their goings-on in China. And not just this. All these American-funded educational institutions, they were ordered to cut their ties with the U.S. Yeah, folks, if there ever was a payback time, this was it. And all those like Jack Jones who thought they might be able to stay on a little longer turned out to be terribly disappointed. Everything was starting to fall into place now. The world was polarizing like never before. Everyone had to tell the United States they either stood with them or stood with the Soviet bloc. Yeah, the heady days of the Dixie Mission were already feeling like they happened in the Tang Dynasty. This was the time when the propaganda industrial complexes of the U.S. and China, the ministries of misinformation, began their golden age. Joe and Lai had to deal with this matter, too. This was serious business trying to drum up support for the new China. The U.S. swung a big bat as the decade of the 50s dawned. The PRC was a brand new government. Who knew how long this regime would last? The Americans? 
they had the atom bomb. Most all nations opted to keep their chips on Uncle Sam. In December 1949, Mao, already leaning to one side, took a trip to Moscow, arriving on the 16th. The occasion was Stalin's 70th birthday gala. Believe it or not, all this time, Mao and Stalin had never met face to face. So now the victorious Mao was going to the communist Sanctum Sanctorum, Moscow. And Mao would have liked it if it had worked out otherwise, but for now, he was completely dependent on the goodwill of the Soviet Union to get through this terribly challenging period. Stalin greeted Mao warmly, and the two guys, who couldn't stand each other, hit it off. Then, after this initial photo op and ritual BS, Stalin went and took a powder and left Mao on his own. This was a tough couple weeks for Chairman Mao. Stalin inserted him in a nice dacha outside of Moscow and did everything for Mao except accede to Mao's requests to meet and hammer out a treaty. Mao was grumpy and so out of his element. He really needed Joe to come save the day. And so, on January 2nd, 1950, Molotov and Mikoyan, the legendary Soviet diplomats who were part of so much history, told Mao that Stalin was ready to talk. Zhou Enlai arrived January 20th. Now the Soviets knew they had to get their game face on. Zhou, in so many words, said to Mao, Step aside, Butch. And over the period of the next several weeks, treaty terms were agreed to, and on Valentine's Day 1950, Mao and Stalin agreed to the terms of the Treaty of Friendship, Alliance, and Mutual Assistance. It sounds like quite a comforting guarantee, but when you read the fine print, Stalin only had to come to Mao's aid if Japan invaded something in 1950 that was not likely. Mao got $300 million in credits with all kinds of strings attached. They had to be paid back within five years and at 1% interest. Stalin agreed to evacuate Lushun and Dalian by 1952. And Outer Mongolia, part of China under the Qing, Mao was hoping to hang on to that real estate. Stalin said they were independent from now on, and that was that. And Mongolia, like China, leaned in Moscow's direction. This treaty was a textbook case of how Mao and Zhou worked together. Zhou was always the closer. Mao had the memory of an elephant, but he wasn't a detail man. Zhou and Lai, you could say with authority, was someone who paid attention to the Xijie. Joe and Mao walked away from this whole experience thinking, with friends like this, who needs enemies? So shabbily had Stalin treated his two guests, it sowed the seeds for the Sino-Soviet split that would happen a decade later. Mao and Joe returned to Beijing on March 4th, 1950. The Korean War is something like a hundred days away. Joe and Lai was going to have to find some way to fit that one into his busy schedule. Ontologically speaking... As John McLaughlin always used to say, it's hard to say how the whole Korean War started. Suffice to say, on January 12, 1950, U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson, in a speech, indicated that the Korean Peninsula was outside of the U.S. defense perimeter. That imaginary line ran from the Aleutian Islands to Japan, Okinawa, down to the Philippines. Korea and Taiwan, they were outside that golden circle. In fact, back then, the Truman administration had washed their hands of Chiang Kai-shek and were willing to cut him loose. 
So as soon as Kim Il-sung heard this, he ran to Stalin and said, The moment hath come. He was confident that there was no need to fear any American involvement and that he could unify the Korean Peninsula. Stalin, in April 1950, gave his stamp of approval to Kim Il-sung to prosecute this war. But he had one huge caveat, and that was no direct Soviet involvement. Stalin made it clear if Kim, who, by the way, is already calling himself the great leader, that if he wanted any additional muscle power, go dial country code 86. And that's how China got sucked in. The great leader came calling in May 1950, visiting Mao in Beijing. He received assurances and backing from Mao. At this point, no one was thinking about any direct involvement of Chinese soldiers in this matter. In fact, Joe was in the midst of demobilizing a big chunk of the PLA. With the Civil War over, there seemed little need to maintain a fighting force of 5.6 million soldiers. Well, the story is well known. Kim Il-sung had assured Mao that he had this one in the bag. And by August, the whole peninsula from the Yalu down to Pusan would belong to the DPRK. Enough said. Mao, on the other hand, wasn't so sure. After everything that he had gone through since practically the Jingangshan days, he wasn't looking to go cross swords with the USA. Not yet, anyway. Mao had said to Joe... He wasn't so sure Kim was going to pull this off like he said he was going to do. And he had a very nagging suspicion that the U.S. would jump in if Kim posed a threat to the Syngman-ri government in South Korea. And as we all know, that's exactly what happened. Two days after North Korean forces crossed the 38th parallel, Dean Acheson or no Dean Acheson, Harry S. Truman ordered military support for the South Korean government. And then on July 7th, 1950, Ringo's 10th birthday. A UN force consisting of New Zealand, Thai, Philippine, Canadian, Australian, Greek, and Turkish forces was put under the command of General Douglas MacArthur. And to dispel any rumors that we didn't care about Taiwan and Chiang Kai-shek's fate, the U.S. 7th Fleet was ordered to start patrolling the Straits of Taiwan, just like a cat arching its back, letting China know don't get any funny ideas. Upon learning about this, Joe stepped forward and delivered a scathing condemnation against the U.N. in general, and the U.S. in particular, for carrying out such an aggressive act against China. Now that the U.S. had laid their cards on the table, Mao and Joe weren't so sure Kim Il-sung's best laid plans were going to turn out like he said. Now it seemed almost inevitable that China was going to get sucked in. A week after the invasion, Joe met with the Soviet ambassador to inform him that China had nine divisions ready at the North Korean border. Joe's message was that, in the event that the U.S.-led coalition crossed the 38th parallel into North Korea, he'd use them. Joe requested Soviet air support in the event that this turn of events went down. We always look at Joe and Lai more as a statesman and a diplomat than we do a military man. As we've seen in these past episodes, he wasn't some party hack with a desk job. From the earliest times at the Wampoa Military Academy up through the Civil War, Joe tasted more than his share of battles and close calls. Side by side, he had worked with Mao throughout the War of Liberation. The Korean War was going to be his last military assignment. Mao put Joe in charge. 
Lin Biao was called upon to lead the forces into battle, but as the story goes, he made a bunch of excuses, and the job got passed to Peng Dehuai. Zhou called for 260,000 soldiers to be based along the Yalu River. All were under Peng's command. At first, they were called the Northeastern Frontier Guards. This group, all consisting of PLA soldiers, then became known as the PVA, or the People's Volunteer Army, the Zhongguo Renmin Jun. They were, in all reality, plain old-fashioned PLA troops, but the PLA, being the official fighting arm of the PRC and all, eh, Mao didn't want to make it seem like China was actually in this fight against the U.S. and U.N. coalition forces. So they became known as the PVA, or the CPVA, Chinese People's Volunteer Army. And this fig leaf for actual Chinese military involvement fought head-to-head under some of the most horrible conditions imaginable. Everyone who fought during the winter months did. The PVA's achievements will provide China's propaganda department enough fodder to last decades. I don't want to hijack this episode and turn it into an overview of the Korean War. Everyone knows Kim Il-sung just blew into South Korea and took the fight clear through down to Pusan in the south. That was the easy part. Zhou Enlai's military advisors, led by Lei Yingfu, the Luoyang Taizi, warned that the great leader was stretched a little too thin in the supply lines department. Everyone saw that the Americans and British had something up their sleeve. Probably something involving cutting Kim's armies off at the rear, most likely at Inchon. Joe thought the same thing, and this is what he geared up for. He told the Soviets this was what was coming, and he once again reminded them about that promised air support for the more than a quarter million Chinese troops getting into position along the Chinese side of the Yalu River. The UN forces were really taking the fight to the North Korean forces and slowly pushing them back to where they came from. Then on September 15, 1950, 260 ships carrying 70,000 UN forces led by General Douglas MacArthur landed at Inchon. This was no storming the beaches of Normandy kind of operation. These troops landing at Inchon met almost no resistance. At this point, Stalin started ranting at Kim Il-sung, telling him to get the hell out of the South and to go defend Seoul before that fell into the hands of the Americans. And if you think the Chinese government pulls out their hair today over the antics of the North Korean government, you should have heard Mao carrying on about the incompetence of Kim Il-sung as a military leader. Joe was giving the Soviet ambassador an airful about their sheer inability to control Kim or the execution of the war. Not much has changed since those dismal days back in August, September 1950. Kim was out doing his thing, not keeping Stalin or Mao terribly informed of his intentions or strategy. On September 25th, Seoul was retaken, and North Korean forces faced a very nasty defeat, and eight of their divisions were completely encircled. It was suddenly not such an outrageous and impossible notion that Pyongyang might be captured by UN coalition forces. Meanwhile, MacArthur put Syngman Rhee, Lee Chung-wan, back in power. The next day, Joe issued a statement warning the U.S. that, quote, the Chinese people will not tolerate foreign aggression, nor will they supinely tolerate seeing their neighbors being savagely invaded by imperialists, end quote. On China's one-year anniversary, 
The first ever Guoqing, MacArthur ordered South Korean and U.S. troops across the 38th parallel. China's leaders had no time to celebrate their national day. They were too tied up in meetings about how to handle the situation they found themselves in. MacArthur was calling for Kim Il-sung's unconditional surrender. At this point, the great leader pressed the panic button and started desperately asking Mao to come to his aid. Stalin was sitting firmly on his hands, telling Kim Il-sung, Don't look at me! Mao wasn't left with much choice in this matter. The overriding paramount issue was that no one in the China leadership wanted any American troops on the Jilin-Liaoning border. That was the big picture issue. Mao had two main things in his favor. Home field advantage and numerical superiority. He sent a message to the U.S. via the Indian ambassador saying in so many words, if you cross the 38th parallel, you're going to have to deal with China. And to that, MacArthur promptly crossed the line. Joe and others in the top echelons of government and the party were not so sure this war was a good idea. But again, like always, once Mao's mind was made up, Joe fell immediately into line and went to work. On October 10th, Joe flew to meet Stalin at his dacha on the Black Sea. Now it was crunch time, and Joe needed to find out exactly how helpful Stalin was going to be in this current crisis. Joe repeated his request for air cover as well as equipment and ammo for his troops. Yeah, Joe got yeah-yeahed by Stalin and assurances were made, but as we'll see, the kind of help China got from the Soviets was hardly what they were hoping for. Stalin was okay with the weapons and ammo, but when it came to air support, he thought this might be a little bit too provocative. The last thing he wanted was to openly turn this flare-up into a proxy war with the USA. And as far as the equipment and ammo, that was no gift. When Joe read the fine print on the agreement, it was all delivered on credit. But the promised air support, the one thing Peng Dehuai really could have used? Stalin was dragging his feet and telling Joe in two or three months' time he could be ready. Furthermore, when Joe protested and said he needed Soviet support now and no lip-syncing, Stalin told him if he thought... China couldn't win this to just back out. That if Kim Il-sung went down the toilet on this one, it wasn't going to be the end of socialism. When the air support finally became available, Stalin refused to fly over Korean airspace. He would only help on the China side of the Yalu River. Nonetheless, China entered the war just one year into the new nation's existence. Mao wasn't terribly thrilled that Stalin was leaving China basically to do the dirty work and face all the economic and geopolitical risks of going up against the U.S. and their allies in this battle. After Zhou Enlai returned to Beijing on October 18, 1950, the go-ahead was given for 200,000 People's Volunteer Army troops to quietly cross the border into North Korea. The China leadership knew what was going on with this war, but the Zhongguo Xing hadn't been informed yet. This task fell to Joe to inform the Chinese people what was going on. He did so at a CPPCC standing committee meeting. The main reason given was that this had to be done to protect China's 500-plus kilometer northeast border. If Kim Il-sung's forces fell, the last thing China wanted was Uncle Sam living next door with easy access to China's industrial Manchurian heartland. And with that, 
the Kangmei Yuanchao Zhanzheng began, and the cry went forth from the posters glued to walls of every Danwei in China all the way to the field of battle. Kangmei Yuanchao, resist America and defend Korea. Once Peng's PVA forces crossed the Yalu quietly, the die was cast. Mao, like the good old days, was the strategist, the big picture guy. Zhou Enlai, delegated by Mao on November 13, 1950, to be the one in charge of prosecuting this war, he had to make everything happen. Peng was the top guy in the field. Nothing new there. The way Zhou worked, he made the decision whether something was important enough to rise to Mao's level. It had to be really important. Otherwise, Joe handled things personally. As I said, I'm not going to turn this into a Korean War episode. Suffice to say, between the moment Pung crossed the Yalu on October 25th and July 1951, a total of five major campaigns were fought. South Korean armies that had pushed Claire across the Yalu were pushed back by PVA forces. By December of that year, in the freezing cold Korean winter, American and Chinese troops were firing on each other. This was indeed one of the worst times ever in Zhongmeiguanxi. All the gains made by MacArthur since Inchon were lost, and the American forces were back on the South Korean side of the 38th parallel. This was seen as a major victory for the Chinese PVA forces. This ended up being a long, protracted slugfest, and no one could get the better of the other, it seemed. In January 1951, Peng's forces even retook Seoul, and for the first time in the bloody history of warfare, 2,000 years after Zhuge Liang invented his repeating crossbow, dogfights in the skies between jet fighters was seen for the first time. But... The PVA forces were getting mowed down like crazy. You've heard before about the human waves of PVA soldiers who ran right into the buzzsaw. In a Central Military Commission meeting held on February 24, 1952, Peng Dehuai had to pound the table to make his point. He wasn't getting supported out in the field, not by Stalin and not by the PLA. His men were freezing cold, hungry, low on weapons, and at times out of ammo. In the spring offensive of April-May 1951, Peng had lost almost 200,000 men. Almost a million Chinese troops, disguised as volunteers, were now in this war. One early casualty of this war was Mao's son from his first wife, Yang Kaihui. 28-year-old Mao Anying, known as Volunteer Number 1, was killed in a U.S. airstrike on November 23, 1980. Peng Dehuai had been personally tasked by Mao to look out for his boy. It said Mao never forgave Peng for his son's death. Zhou Enlai, upon hearing of the death, held the news from Mao for several months. The chairman, despite never winning any Father of the Year awards, was terribly shaken upon hearing the news. All this time, the way in which the war had been fought, to keep up appearances that China itself was not directly involved, military authorities in the northeastern region had been running things. Zhou had been the one to decide that this war was now a matter for the central authorities. Both sides underestimated the other. Just as Kim Il-sung felt the U.S. wouldn't intervene in Korea, 
So MacArthur felt about the Chinese. He turned out to be dead wrong about that. Once this happened, MacArthur began talking about expanding the war, unleashing Chiang Kai-shek's forces, and even going so far as to suggest nuclear weapons be used in the conflict. By July 1951, the first signals started to be given out by the UN that an armistice wouldn't be such a bad idea at this present time. By then, MacArthur had been sacked by his commander-in-chief, and General Omar Bradley had already uttered the famous words that this was, quote, the wrong war and the wrong time with the wrong enemy, end quote. So when it came time to negotiate, it was Joe and Lai who sat across the table from the American side. These talks began on July 20th, 1951. There's never going to be a peace treaty signed. Still hasn't been signed into our very day. But after two years of excruciating negotiations, three years, two months, and two days after it all started, they did hammer out an armistice. This document was signed by Peng De Huai at Panmunjom on July 27th, 1953. It was said on that night, Zhou Enlai got soused on Maltai, something seen only a few times in his illustrious career as China's premier. Four months earlier, Stalin had died. Zhou Enlai represented China's official delegation to the funeral. While he was in Moscow, Zhou used the time to bring up the matter of the Soviets sharing the secrets to make the atomic bomb. He's going to have to wait a long time for that recipe. The war was a propaganda minister's dream come true. For Zhou Enlai, though, it was a bit of a nightmare. As China's foreign minister, it fell to his capable shoulders to counter all the efforts by the United States to isolate China. The hatred was still throbbing on both sides by the time 1954 rolled around. As a result of the Korean War, suddenly the Syngman-ri and Chiang Kai-shek governments became of paramount importance and central to U.S. foreign policy. And with that, the temperature of the Cold War was lowered a bit more than it already was. In China, the anti-American rhetoric and slogans being propagated from every Shi, Jun, and Cun of China was loud and effective. Any Westerner, missionary, businessman, NGO worker, whoever you were, and especially if you were an American, post-Korean War, the heat really got turned up on you. American attempts to contain communism and isolate China were very obvious. All of a sudden, China's neighbors became more important to us than ever before. China's attempts to gain acceptance at the UN were rebuffed, the way Zhou Enlai saw it. The U.S. was leading this charge to isolate China and, you know, in so many words, make them look bad. Joe knew it was going to be up to him to get out into the world and make new friends for China and at least get a dialogue going with those who were, for their own reasons or because of U.S. pressure, weren't so sure they wanted to be friends with the new China. You see, Mao had gone around making a lot of noise about revolution and communists everywhere uniting together to fight imperialism and capitalists. A lot of countries had the you-know-what scared out of them. This was a major concern, and Joe is going to address this matter skillfully later on. For now, he saw that China's only friends were the communist countries of Europe and Asia. That didn't add up to too much. 
Joe's big picture solution was to create a third block that could serve as an alternative to the Soviet or American-led blocks. Joe Enlai saw how many countries there were around the world, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, that had suffered under imperialism and colonialism. Many were struggling third-world nations who didn't have a dog in the U.S.-Soviet fight. Joe was determined to reach out to these nations, hit the reset button, and obtain their support. In 1954, there were two main diplomatic problems Joe and Lai had to focus on above all else. One was the aftermath and unsettled issues left over from the Korean War. The other was the Vietnam War. Ho Chi Minh had always been a friend and ally of Zhou Enlai, going back to their Paris days in the 1920s. His Viet Minh forces had been hammering the French, and the prevailing attitude back in the home country was to get out of Vietnam. For France, it wasn't Vietnam. They were called Indochina. Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam were seen as one colonial entity. The French were looking for a graceful exit, and how this all got handled was of paramount importance to Zhou Enlai as he began to get involved. The Soviets went to France, the U.S., and Great Britain and proposed everyone get together around a table with China and hash this whole thing out with Korea and Vietnam. And this meeting became known as the Geneva Conference in 1954. This was Joe's first major foray onto the world stage as Premier and Foreign Minister of the People's Republic of China. He had made three trips to Moscow to prep with Khrushchev and Molotov. The conference ran from April 26th to July 20th, 1954. Joe arrived with an oversized staff of about 200. For a forum such as this, Joe seized the opportunity to put on his teacher's hat and offer some on-the-job training to many young, inexperienced, but up-and-coming foreign ministry staffers. If they kept their eyes and ears open, they might learn a thing or two from someone like Joe and Lai. Now, Joe's ascetic tastes were well known. He was not someone who loved to wallow in luxury. But China's face was on the line here, so they couldn't go showing up in front of these Western powers like a bunch of mendicants. Joe was ensconced in the Grand Montfleury in Versoix, seven kilometers outside Geneva. He had the place spruced up a bit, flew in all kinds of furniture and treasures from China to have lying around to wow the diplomatic crowds. The finest chefs were flown in from Beijing, along with all their pots and pans and cooking utensils. They would be kept busy throughout the three-month period. In this grand edifice, Joe held court, meeting with leaders, negotiating, getting to know people, and showing them China was hardly the ogre they were expecting. After all these years, Joe and Lai knew how to put on a good show and turn on the charm. Representing the USA for about a week and a half was, of course, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, older brother to the long-serving CIA Director Alan Dulles. It was John Foster who had the airport named after him. As the story goes, when Joe extended his hand to the U.S. representative, Dulles refused to shake it. That may be true, and it may not be true. Dulles was not happy to be there and not happy that he got strong-armed into having to meet with these two communist enemies of the U.S. He thought it was a bad idea to invite the Chinese and Vietnamese to the meeting. 
This whole matter of how everyone was supposed to act just stifled the atmosphere. There were so many rules about who could say what to whom and protocols to follow. But once Dulles went back to the States and Walter Biddell Smith took over, things loosened up a bit. There would end up being 15 meetings in all between the U.S. and China regarding the Korean question. In the end, neither side budged. The Korean talks were leading nowhere. Next up on the agenda was Indochina. The talks started off with an unexpected bang when a day before they began on May 8th, Vong Wingap's forces, aided by Chinese General Wei Guoqing, emerged victorious over the French at Dien Bien Phu. That sure changed the tone of the negotiations. With that glorious come-from-behind victory, Pham Van Dong, the Vietnamese representative of the Ho Chi Minh government, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, got a little bit too cocky and became very forceful and demanding about the unification of the country and hanging on to territories won in neighboring Laos and Cambodia. You may recall that Vietnam got split up at Potsdam in 1945. A unified Vietnam, controlled by Ho Chi Minh and allied with China, was not what the Americans wanted, especially on the heels of what had just gone down in Korea. No one knew this better than Zhou Enlai, and so it fell to him to use every ounce of his formidable diplomatic skills to convince Pham Van Dong to back down. Pham, of course, would serve as North Vietnam's prime minister from 1955 to 1976, after unification. During this phase of the Geneva Conference, it was all Zhou Enlai. First of all, when it came to schmoozing the Western diplomats and leaders, he was China's secret weapon. The peace worked out at the Geneva Conference that settled matters, albeit briefly, was written, produced, and directed by Zhou Enlai. On June 23rd, Zhou flew to Bern to meet the new French Prime Minister, Pierre Mendes France. Zhou's fluency in French came in handy, allowing him to make a strong connection with Mendes France. Zhou knew that the French were looking for a way out. He did all the necessary arm-twisting and cajoling with Van Van Dong to get a dialogue going and to come to a general understanding with the French president. Joe left the two leaders to hash things out for themselves, and he flew to India next to have a quick tete-a-tete with Nehru. There they came up with the idea for the Bandong Conference, something we'll get to in the next episode. Joe and Nehru were BFFs at this early stage. Thanks to Great Britain, there were a couple border issues as yet unresolved, but for the meantime, these had been swept under the rug. Come October 1962, this won't be the case. For now, during this era of Sino-Indian good feeling, it was thought, why open up that can of worms? On June 28, 1954, the Geneva Conference is still going on, Joe next flew to Burma to visit with Unu. He was the first prime minister of independent Burma. He assumed control after the assassination of Aung San Suu Kyi's father, Aung San. Joe and New shook hands, and the Burmese leader signed on to Joe's five principles of peaceful coexistence. This was the deal Joe signed with Nehru, and he was taking the same idea to anyone who would sign on. They were simple and straightforward. One, mutual respect for each other's territorial integrity and sovereignty. Two, mutual non-aggression. Three, mutual non-interference in each other's internal affairs. 
four, equality and cooperation for mutual benefit, and five, peaceful coexistence. Nothing fancy. Two days later, Zhou met Ho Chi Minh in the city of Liuzhou in Guangxi province, a place famous for the wood grown there that makes the best coffins. This part of Guangxi province had always served as a base for the Viet Minh going back to the 1930s. Bac Ho had a villa there. Flush with success and fully aware the French were itching for a way out of Vietnam, Ho suggested the notion of a unified Vietnam. Joe convinced him, as good as the idea was, the time wasn't ripe. Joe told Ho Chi Minh to take the Geneva Agreement as is, divide it at the 17th parallel, and wait a couple years before any attempt to unify with the South. Pham and Ho were adamant that the dividing line should be at the 16th parallel. Joe told them, don't haggle over one degree latitude. Take it, and in two years they could unify the country. From there... Joe flew back to Beijing to check in with you-know-who, and then on July 10th, he landed back in Geneva and went straight to meet Pham Van Dong. Pham wasn't as malleable as Ho Chi Minh, and he still gave very strong resistance to Joe, even considering his advice a kind of betrayal. Believe it or not, come 1979, when Vietnam and China have their three-week and six-day war, this whole matter of Zhou Enlai selling out Vietnam at the Geneva Conference will be dredged up, for old time's sake, I guess. But you see, Zhou Enlai had many other big fish to fry besides Pham Van Dong. In 1954, Zhou was desperately trying to hang on to the crown jewel of China friends. These were the overseas Chinese. They were spread out all over the world, and many of them were loaded, influential with their respective governments, but still maintained loyalties with and had family in China. Joe knew if he let Pham Van Dong have his way, everyone would know China was behind that decision, and their nation, be it Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, or wherever, could be next, and the overseas Chinese knew they'd be caught in the crosshairs if governments got paranoid about their ethnic Chinese population. Pham had been insisting that the Patat Lao and Khmer Isark be invited to participate in the talks. Joe had to remind him Cambodia still had a king, as did Laos. So why complicate matters? Yeah, Joe had to handle this very diplomatically. And of course, besides all this, Joe knew with a high degree of certainty under the present conditions, McCarthyism and the Red Scare now in full swing, if Vietnam was unified under Ho Chi Minh with France gone, the U.S. would come running. He wasn't wrong about that. As an epilogue to the Geneva Conference, after everything was signed on July 20th, 1954, and everyone had gone home, the U.S. on September 8th went ahead and created CEDO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. CEDO essentially was a mutual defense treaty that said if any of the members, including South Vietnam, was attacked, the U.S. would intervene. In December, the creation of CETO was followed by, of course, the Taiwan Relations Act, and once again, we became Chiang Kai-shek's big, strong buddy. Those two things helped a great deal to stoke the fires of animosity a few thousand more degrees Kelvin. Another feather in Joe's cap was earned when he skillfully managed to put in place communication channels with the U.S. They may have been enemies, and would remain so until Nixon's plane landed at Capitol Airport in February 1972. 
But Joe knew unofficial relations were better than no relations. Joe looked at the Tres Amigos, the U.S., Britain, and France, and knew all three had varying interests where China and that part of the world was concerned. So he lobbied Britain and France separately. The head of the British delegation was Sir Anthony Eden. Eden and Joe hit it off at once. So well did they get along that when the subject of Korean War POWs came up and no solution could be reached, Eden went to the American side and said, Hey man, one of China's top leaders is here. Why not just discuss this matter with him directly, face to face? Walter Bedell Smith couldn't say yes to something of this magnitude without checking with Eisenhower first. After Ike gave the okay, the two enemies sat down at the same table and hashed things out. Wang Bingnan and Huan Xiang, representing the Chinese, and Alexis Johnson, negotiating on behalf of the Americans. And thus began Sino-U.S. unofficial relations. By December 1960, the two sides would have already met almost a hundred times. If you recall from those episodes on Nixon's visit to China, it was thanks to all these unofficial channels that the coming together of the U.S. and China was made possible. These back-channel talks kept going from 1954 to December 1957, stopping for a while and then picking up again in 1959. By the time Zhou Enlai unpacked his suitcase and settled back in Beijing after the Geneva Conference, he should have felt pretty good about himself. He made China look good, had a hand in influencing events, and not quite five years into the birth of the People's Republic of China, he had made a lot of new friends, and many channels were put in place that might lead to normalization of relations. Beijing became a hot destination for leaders from many nations who wanted to meet Zhou and Mao. Khrushchev visited September 29th to October 12th. The main event was the fifth anniversary of the founding of the PRC. They're getting along for now. His secret speech won't be until February 1956. Well, stoppage time is over, so let's wind this up. I truly thought we'd get through the Bandung Conference in this episode, but that historic meeting and all the China domestic politics will have to wait until next time. While the Korean War and Geneva Conference was going on, there was also the Gaogang Affair as well as the Sanfan and Wufan campaigns. That will be discussed in Part 6. Well, that's all for now. This is your humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from a very cozy Airbnb Paris apartment on Le Boulevard Richard Lenoir, walking in the footsteps of Joe and Lai himself from 1921 to 1924. I'm back in Cali soon, and I promise, right after delousing from the flight back to LAX, I will commence work on Joe and Lai Part 6. Until then, au revoir, mes amis. Je me réjouis de vous voir la prochaine fois pour un autre épisode passionnant de la Chine Histoire Podcast.